going to start with a biblical passage to just kind of set the context. So that's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, in a few weeks, the Christmas season will be in full swing. We all know this, right? It's, it's actually three weeks away. It's not snowing yet, which is to my unfortunate demise. I really love the snow. Uh, unlike many of us. And it's really that time of, of year where we begin to exchange gifts with one another, demonstrating our generosity, our appreciation, and our love. And you may already hear the carols are underway, the mall is already packed with shopping at full swing, and wish lists are already being written by little children for their holiday surprise when they wake up on the 25th. For La- Latino families, it's 24th at midnight. But what was originally a Christian holiday to celebrate the costly gift of God's grace for man's salvation was, as we know, secularized by the Western world to be a season of increased consumerism. A distorted caricature of St. Nicholas as Santa Claus emerged, and it was always meant to dissuade children from the true reason for the season. What was once Christ-centered is now man-centered. Less of what God has accomplished for mankind as part of his redemptive plan and purpose and for his glory, and more about what mankind wants out of the Christmas season. It is fitting then, with Christmas emerging around the corner, that we turn our gaze towards what lies in the shadow of modern-day Christmas, the truth behind all the gifts, the candles, and the festivities, what should be forefront and center Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. And according to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, gifts were brought unto the promised king. Three wise men, believed to have been from the east, and likely well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures as a result of the Jewish exile, where the Jews were under Babylonian, Persian, and Assyrian captivity. They traveled with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it must have really been a beautiful sight to lay eyes on the promised Messiah and king of the world, the Son of God in human flesh. The story of Jesus' virgin birth is believed by both Christians and Muslims. And of those who do not believe him to be the divine incarnation, they at least recognize that this was no ordinary man, but rather special in the eyes of God and of men. Of course, Scripture makes very clear that Jesus was more than just a rasul, Arabic for a prophet. He was more than just a mere man. He was and is the second person the triune God. And as we had read in the Gospel of Matthew, he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And his name Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua, meaning 
Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. His name reinforces the very purpose of God entering our created domain, which we read in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. To say that Christmas is the season in which we celebrate the birth of Christ as God's gift of grace does not mean that Christ was created or began to exist the moment He was conceived in the womb. This is what we refer to the Incarnation the Son of God taking on human flesh to enter our world, to walk our earth, to keep the law that we could not keep, and having fulfilled both the law and the prophets, qualified to pay our sin debt on the cross. And it's important to understand what the incarnation means to understand the Christology of the Christ, that is to say the nature of Christ as the God-man, and comprehending the implications that follow as a result of who He is. Well, over the course of history... The question of Jesus' nature was always in the forefront of discussion. It began first in the church, and once resolved, it then emerged in other worldviews, such as Islam, Mormonism, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, to name just a few present-day religions and sects. At the end of the day, it's God's Word that serves as the final authority, and given the foreign foundations of other religions and other worldviews, including its lack of comparable historical data, They bear no weight in the discussion of Jesus' incarnation. But in regards to the church, before formally recognizing the doctrine of the Son of God by the church, splintering views began to emerge early in its history, posing a serious threat to Christian teaching and discipleship. The doctrinal discussion centered on the nature of Christ and His relationship to God the Father, prompting questions such as, Was Jesus Christ completely God, or was He less than God? And if Jesus is completely God, do Christians have three gods, including the Holy Spirit? And if not, can Jesus save us if He was not God, as He had claimed? The historical figure at the forefront of this controversy was Arius, who lived from 256 to 336 AD. He was a presbyter under the Bishop Alexander of Alexandria. Arius was a Libyan by birth having served as the leader of a regional congregation in Alexandria, a place called Balcalis. Prior to this, he was trained in Antioch, what once was the headquarters for the Apostles of Christ, and trained specifically in interpreting scriptures in a literal sense. At AD 318, Arius had decided upon further study that he would compromise the dignity and the honor of God the Father to say that Jesus Christ was of the same divine, eternal essence as God. As a result, he developed a system that declared the Christ as a created being, having been created before time, but through whom God created all things. Jesus was, therefore, in Arius' view, greater than human beings, but less than God, somewhere in between, but neither one nor the other. Now, it was his desire to safeguard the uniqueness and perfection of God which drove Arius towards advancing his doctrine. And it was, in his eyes, necessary to reinterpret the story of Jesus in a way that would not jeopardize the essential otherness of God. It was because Jesus had participated in human vulnerability that he came in human flesh and suffered that provoked Arius 
to think that Christ should not be thought of God, as God in exactly the same sense as the God he called the Father. What then of the title Son of God? Well, what Arius claimed, and indeed what even Muslims have claimed, given that they themselves are Arians in this respect, is that Jesus received this title from God by divine grace and favor. It did not mean that he was literally the Son of God. Arius claimed to have found support in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, which reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Along with John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The one who is at the Father's side who has made him known is Jesus Christ. And according to Arius' interpretation of Paul's writing, Jesus was therefore created before all other things were created. Now, it's this same verse that Jehovah's Witnesses have also taken to support their understanding of Christ. Being Arians themselves, they believe Jesus to be neither God nor fully man but rather a divine creation, somewhere between God and man, but neither fully God nor fully man. Well, how then, if he be not God, could Jesus have lived a perfect life on earth? Well, once again, Arius argues that such perfection was not of Christ's doing, but rather it was God's sovereign will, the efforts of Christ therefore bearing no weight whatsoever. Now, perhaps appealing to humanists, is Arius's claim that by virtue of the moral life that Christ lived, triumphing over real temptations and evil, Jesus set an example for the rest of humanity to pursue. And what evidently helped to popularize Arianism in the Christian church was developing hymns and chants incorporating Arian doctrine. And one of those songs was actually sung by Arius at the Council of Nicaea. And it went along like this. The uncreated God has made the Son a beginning of things created. And by adoption has God made the Son into an advancement of Himself. Yet the Son's substance is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father, nor does He share the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is the teacher of His mysteries. The members of the Holy Trinity share unequal glories. I would sing it to you, but I'm not a good singer. I don't know the tune. Now, at this point, it's important to note that Arius' use of the Bible seemed rather selective or sophistic, in that he was accused by the bishops of the church, the leaders of the church of the time, of reading meanings into innocent passages that distorted the rightful sense of the text. You see, his success had less to do with his exegesis, less to do with his interpretation or his skills to do so, and more to do with his charm and his charisma. And with the Antiochian school of thought following suit, which is where he had been trained, a divide was beginning to emerge at this point in the church, which to the Roman emperor Constantine was a threat to the stability of the empire. This led to Constantine calling a Catholic council, and that term Catholic means universal, a Catholic council to meet at Nicaea. In other words, all the Christian leaders throughout the empire was summoned to this universal council in which over 300 bishops were present. Now, this is the council where Arius sung his creedal expression to the bishops and the Roman emperor, and the term creed meaning, I believe, a statement of beliefs. And as I had read, Arius defined the nature of Christ as being different from that of God, and he thus viewed Christ as a created being, greater than humans and worthy of worship, but less than God. 
His logic was, if the Father begat the Son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. Hence, it is clear that there was when the Son was not. It follows then of necessity that he had his existence from the non-existent. Now, given that Christmas is only a few weeks away, it's worth mentioning that St. Nicholas, the bishop who would later inspire the fictional character of Santa Claus, was present at the council. And as a result of Arius' teaching and the defense of his doctrine, St. Nicholas apparently responded violently by punching Arius in the face. What one Catholic scholar nicknamed the heretic slap. Of course, such behavior is rather unbefitting of a bishop and a leader of the church, so discipline was appropriately carried out. But according to what tradition states, St. Nicholas was later repentant and reinstated as a bishop in the church. Now, it was agreed by the majority of the bishops that Arius' doctrine was heresy, a false teaching, resulting from an inappropriate interpretation of the Christian scriptures. But the overall goal of the council was to hammer out a unified statement of beliefs that was faithful to the Bible. The council meeting was not concluded in a day, with deliberations lasting up to two months, as some creedal expressions from the Arian party were rejected on the grounds of it departing from the original faith of the apostles, while other creedal expressions were far too vague that it allowed Arians to hold to their doctrine. You see, the challenge at this council, according to historian Ivor J. Davidson, was developing a statement that would express the relationship of the Father and the Son in a way that neither reduced the divinity of the Son nor rendered the distinction between the Father and the Son merely a matter of different temporal manifestations. In the end, it was young Athanasius, a young deacon from the Alexandrian church, who helped propose what would be the Nicene Creed. And it goes along like this. We believe in one God, the Father, all-powerful, maker of all things, both seen and unseen, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten from the Father, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, which means of the same substance with the Father, through whom all things came to be, both those in heaven and those in earth. For us humans and for our salvation, he came down and became incarnate, became human, suffered, and rose up on the third day, went up into the heavens, is coming to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, the council agreed upon this creed and proceeded to write a condemnation of any individual who holds to the Arian creed. That is to say that Christ is not God and did not exist eternally with the Father. And the words that were central to the discussion of the council was of one essence with the Father, which the church had recognized by God's word concerning Jesus Christ. Now, there were a number of key assertions at the council, to suggest, and here we're about to suggest four of them. The first was asserting that Christ was true God from true God. The second was asserting that Christ was consubstantial, which means of one substance with the Father. And this was derived from a summary of Christ's teaching. The third was asserting that Christ was begotten, not made, meaning that Christ was always in eternity the Son of God. He was never created. And the fourth was asserting that Christ became human for us and our salvation, the Incarnation. So as a result of the Nicene Council, the Emperor Constantine approved the creed. 
believing it would bring stability to the Roman Empire, and therefore banished Arius and those who followed his doctrine. Now, that was short-lived, as Constantine would later change his mind and usher Arius back into the public square, and in his place he banished Athanasius. Now, there was an evident struggle after the council at Nicaea, as the creed led some to misunderstand the Christian faith and perceive it to instead portray some form of tritheism, that is to say, three gods, or perhaps modalism, which means the loss of individual personality in the Trinity. Now, this led to a rallying cry for Arianism to emerge. It seemed easier to believe in Arianism. And despite it failing to convince the bishops of the church at the council meeting, it proved to be very popular for the common lay people. Now, this was kind of the perfect storm for Athanasius, who had been called by God to respond to this false teaching permeating the church. Athanasius was a secretary under Bishop Alexander. And with Arius having been dismissed as a presbyter, Alexander elected Athanasius as his successor. Now, Athanasius then rose from a young deacon and secretary to the Bishop of Alexandria. And it would be his staunch defense of the true faith that resulted in him being banished five times, all because he refused to deny and stop teaching the divinity of Jesus. Now, unlike popular opinion, Arius' questioning of Jesus' nature and relationship with the Father was not merely philosophical conversation. Instead, he viewed it as daggers aimed at the very heart of the Christian message. Athanasius responded by publishing his work called On the Incarnation, in which he argued that the Incarnation was God's entry into the world uncreated God entering the created but fallen world in order that he might rescue humanity from sin and death. His logic was that only the assumption of humanity by one who is himself fully divine could effect a change in this creaturely state. By becoming human and living a human life, the divine word who is in himself the true image of God restored the image of God that is marred in us. In other words... Christ can only offer us change if he is fully divine. Because if he is not, then he is powerless to redeem and renew mankind to reflect the image of God. In another apologetic, he published Orations Against the Arians, in which he argues that if Christ were to be less than God, then salvation is absolutely impossible. No created creature could save us from our sin. Only someone equal to God can be man's savior. If there is found anything less than the full assertion of equality of substance between Jesus and the Father, then human salvation becomes illogical. Now, it is insufficient, in other words, to say that Jesus and the Father are equal. That would promote polytheism, multiple gods. But rather, they must also be one in their being. If the Christ is nothing more than just a similar substance of the Father, which is what Arius had claimed, and not the same substance then he could not be the Savior that humanity needs, nor the Lord who Christians worship. He could not be the hope of every believer, as we read Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is what marked Athanasius as the champion of orthodoxy. This is kind of a title that's been given to him in church history, because he fought to preserve the true Christian tradition, the true faith as revealed in God's word. For those familiar with C.S. Lewis, he was a theologian and author of the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters, a good friend of 
J.R.R. Tolkien. He wrote Athanasius stood for the Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled. When it looked as if all the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arius, into one of those sensible synthetic religions, which then, as now, included among their devotees many highly cultivated clergymen. And so Athanasius wrote on the Incarnation. In fact, he touched on it very directly. He said that Christ took to himself a body, a human body, even as our own. Nor did he will merely to become embodied or merely to appear. Had that been so, he could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way. He writes, No, he took our body. He, the mighty one, the creator of all, himself prepared this body in the virgin as a temple for himself and took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. Thus taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death in place of all and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us. Athanasius suffered persecution for his faithful witness of God's word. He defended the church from heretical doctrine, publishing apologetic works and teaching wherever he went. He had been banished, reinstated, banished, reinstated, even finding security under a pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, who wanted to divide the church by reinstating Athanasius. But what he meant as harm to the church was God's sovereign plan to restore the church with sound doctrine. As time progressed, Arianism gradually began to fade, as is the case with all false teachings. And what remained was the faithful interpretation of the Christian scriptures for the church. Now, in a conversation I once had with a Muslim debater, uh, this was down in Trinidad, he had brought a common argument levied against the Christian faith, particularly concerning the incarnation and the divinity of Jesus. He had said, that in the end it was man, not God, who had stamped out the Arian doctrine, the belief that Jesus was neither God nor man, but somewhere in between, who is divine and who came in the form of man. He didn't subscribe to the full tenets of Arianism, but he did believe that the result of this Nicene Council, in which the creed was reinforced at the Council of Constantinople in AD 381, resulted in the loss of other Christian traditions. And therefore, the true faith had been lost over time. Operating from a different starting point in his thinking, what he did was he misinterpreted this important event in church history in order to set the platform for his belief in Islam. Because Islam is seen as a perceived correction to the Christian faith, seeing that he believed the true faith had been lost. But how would then we respond to this argument? We ought to consider the example set out before us by Athanasius, in which he mirrors the New Testament writers in relying upon God's revealed word for their starting point in thinking. When discussing the incarnation and divinity of Jesus, we must ask, what does God's word teach us? Well, this is going to bring us through the Christology of the New Testament. Christian scholars Robert Bauman Jr. and Ed Komosiewski have laid out five characteristic traits from the Gospels that speak towards Jesus' deity. The first concerns honor. Jesus shares the honors due to God. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, when he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, stating, Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. When we survey the Gospel of Matthew, we find Jesus as the object of worship. 
such as when Jesus walked on water. And upon saving Peter from drowning and calming the winds, Matthew chapter 14, verse 33 reads, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When Jesus asked the disciples who they believed he was in response to people rumoring that he was Elijah or Jeremiah, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 says that Simon Peter confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. After the resurrection of Jesus, when the disciples gathered on a mountain in Galilee, Matthew chapter 28, verse 17 reads, When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, these are only samples of numerous instances where Jesus shares the honors due to God throughout the gospel accounts, but there are far more in the rest of God's word. But the second concerns attributes, the second trait concerns attributes. Jesus shares the attributes of God. Not only is he worshipped as the Son of God, but he also bears the nature of God. When Jesus spoke with his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 9 to 10, we read, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now, Jesus clearly states that he is the perfect revelation of the Father. Therefore, in having seen Jesus, they have seen the Father who is God. In another conversation, Jesus told his disciples that he pre-existed before his human birth. As we read in John chapter 16, verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. In identifying Jesus as the Logos, Greek for the word, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it states that Jesus has been since the beginning, just as Genesis chapter 1 opens, stating that the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Commentator Donald McLeod writes, Therefore, the Son is the Logos, and the Logos has no origin. Jesus is being of one, Jesus is being of one substance with the Father, omnipotent as well who, although capable, refused to turn stones into bread in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, and multiplied five loaves of bread to feed 5,000 men and their families in John chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. Jesus is also omniscient, perceiving the deep thoughts of the Pharisees when he had healed a paralytic. They had not spoken aloud and were not the center of attention. Nonetheless, the Gospel of Mark records, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Now, it's clear that man cannot forgive a man's sin against God. For Jesus to forgive the sins of the paralytic, he demonstrated that he is capable of not only healing, but also forgiving, being the Son of God. The third trait that is also mentioned concerns names. Jesus shares the names of God. When Thomas saw and touched the resurrected Lord, John chapter 20, verse 28 reads that he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Murray J. Harris, he's the author of Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos in reference to Jesus, argues that this view prevails among grammarians, lexicographers, commentators, and English versions, and that this was direct worship towards Jesus. He wasn't just saying, Oh my God. He was saying, my Lord and my God. As we had read earlier, Jesus is also called Emmanuel in fulfillment of the messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which means God with us. Or consider John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus, which was foretold in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church, wrote that Jesus, being God, is God over all. As read Romans chapter 9, verse 5, to whom the forefathers belong and from whom the Christ sprang according to the flesh, God who is over all, be blessed forever. Amen. The Apostle Peter, having written the second epistle of Peter, wrote in chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God and Savior. We find the same linguistic expression in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 18. Even Jesus saying, I am, in John chapter 8, verse 24, verse 28, and verse 58, directly references Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God tells Moses that he is, I am who I am, along with Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 to 11. And for this reason, the Jews sought to stone him. Now also consider that you will also find in the Greek Septuagint the same Greek word kurios, which is used for the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, for the Lord Jesus, which is quite interesting. It was seen as fairly equivalent. They were the same essence, the same being. The fourth trait concerns deeds. Jesus shares the deeds that God does. As we read in John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus was in the beginning with God, and all things were created or made through him, implying that Jesus was active in the creation of the cosmos, an act only attributable to God. In his acts of miracles and healing, raising the dead and calming the storms, all these events we read in the Gospels, what differentiated Jesus from the disciples and in all the Old Testament prophets was that the disciples and prophets had to appeal unto God to operate in the miraculous. But in Jesus' case, he was and is the authority. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus states, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the book of Acts, we read that the early Christian community referred to the Christian faith as part of the way in which Jesus is the only way of salvation. The fifth trait that is mentioned concerns the placement of authority. Jesus shares in the seat of God's throne. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus is placed on trial by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high priest Caiaphas asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Jesus responded, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this prompted the high priest to tear his clothes and accuse him of blasphemy. Now, two things can be said here. First, the title, Son of Man, is reference to the Messianic prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, of one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. What we can say in response to that is, scholar Darrell L. Bach states, the image of riding the clouds is reserved for God outside of this text in Daniel. The image shows how intimately the function of the Son of Man is tied to divine authority, even though the description is of a human. The language that is only used for God is applied here for Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read that Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we find in God's revealed word that Jesus shares the honors due to God, shares the attributes of God, 
shares the names of God, shares in the deeds that God does, and shares in the seat of God's throne. St. Augustine, believing the whole of Scripture concerning the nature of Christ, wrote regarding Christ's deity and on the Incarnation, saying, Christ was born of a human mother, and hence has commended that holy day to the ages. He was born of a divine Father, and hence has created all the ages. Christ was born of a father, God, and a mother, Mary, but without a human father or a divine mother. Without a mother, he's still a divine being, and without a father, he's still a human being. This is the miracle of the Incarnation. Christ came in human flesh, but did not have a human father, hence the virgin birth. He, being the Son of God, had a human mother so that he may enter the created world in human flesh, but did not have a divine mother of any sort, He was and is eternally the Son of God. In essence, what St. Augustine is saying is that Jesus did not need a human father to enter the created world, and he did not need a divine mother to be the uncreated and eternal Son of God. He came to our earth as 100% God, fully God, fully man, the God-man. Now, considering then that Christ is God the Son, and that is clearly what the Scriptures portray, what then are the implications of Jesus' coming? of Him being Lord and Savior. Well, we must first understand why He has come into the earth, why the uncreated Son has entered into the created world to begin with. And most of us may already be familiar with what I'm about to mention. As we had read in Scripture, and as we had read in the Nicene Creed, all of creation was created through Christ and for Him. And the gross error of the Arians in perceiving Jesus as the literal firstborn of all creation is corrected by understanding that the title is that of inheritance as Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 actually means, that all of creation is His inheritance. God created the world good. He declared it good. And He did the same with man, creating him in His image. When man sinned, rebelling against his Creator, all that was under his domain was tainted by sin. That is not to say that creation has become sinful, but rather that it is suffering from the pollution of sin. The consequence of man breaking God's spoken command resulted in death, suffering, evil, and a separation from the holy, God. Where once man could cultivate creation to reflect the glory of God, a culture of life, man, in his sin, now cultivates a culture of death. This is why God the Son, Jesus Christ, entered our world, taking on human flesh, to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill, so that He may pay our sin debt on the cross which according to Romans chapter chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The good news of the gospel, of the good news of those who repent and turn to Christ, is the salvation and redemption they find in Him, as the rest of the verse reads, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But there's more from what we need to understand. There's more to the gospel. It's not only our salvation and redemption, but the renewal we have in Christ to undo the effects of sin and to empower us to take up once again our cultural mandate. You see, it was always clear that Christ came as king. He established the kingdom of God on earth, is seated on the throne and recognized as the king of kings and lord of lords. And these are not just fanciful terms to ascribe praise to our Lord. They mean exactly what they portray. That Christ is sovereign Lord and King over all creation. Not watching from afar to see how we make do with our world, but rather actively reigning and ruling. 
There is nothing in His creation, in man's domain and beyond, that is not subject to the Lordship of Christ. He is greater than any emperor, king, politician, prime minister, president, or even UN council. And so in the substitutionary death and resurrection, Christ succeeded where Adam had failed. And His reward is the earth and all of creation as His inheritance. Psalms chapter 2, verse 8. See, Christ is not only God of very God, He is the new dominion man, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Adam was given dominion over the earth and failed, having sinned against God, to fulfill the purpose and will of God. In Christ, redeemed man can now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, carry out the Great Commission, the renewed cultural mandate from Genesis to cultivate creation. You see, the gospel is salvation and redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of our sin and the rescue from sinful depravity, the exchange of death for eternal life, but it is also creating a culture in harmony with God's will revealed in His Word. You see, Calvin College professor Dr. H. Henry Meter wrote, In man's cultural task, man is to take the raw materials of this universe and subdue them, make them serve Christ's purpose, and bring them to nobler and higher levels, thus bringing out the possibilities which are hidden in nature, laying his entire cultural product, the whole of creation, at the feet of him who is king of man and of nature. As theologian Andrew Sandlin writes, Christ nailed the power of sin to the cross, overcoming the diabolical powers that plunge the earth into depravity. And by this we can overcome the evil of our world and proclaim the truth of Christ's lordship and salvation, as God brings all things under the dominion of His Son, Jesus Christ, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. This is why we find great joy in the gospel. Because as St. Augustine said, Christ wished to become one of our children in order to do something lovely for us. That's to say, make us all His children, the children of God. The birth of Christ is an occasion celebrated every year. The free gift of God's grace unto man, that in Christ and through His redemptive work, man and his world may be redeemed and renewed reversing the effects of the fall, exchanging sin for righteousness through the biblical gospel. Men like Arius have risen and fallen, all failing to derail God's sovereign plan, failing to obscure the truth that shall be forever proclaimed, and great glory to God that He raised such a man as Athanasius and those like him who confronted the evil of false doctrines concerning the deity of Christ and His relationship to the Father. As historian Ivor J. Davidson writes on Athanasius' belief, Only a fully divine Christ could effect the change that a fallen realm requires, out of its bondage to decay and into glorious union with its maker. Only a fully divine Christ could revolutionize the human plight and bring human beings to the destiny for which God intended them, the ultimate status of being partakers of the divine nature. The incarnation, uncreated Son of God, entering our created world in human flesh is a miracle of God. And even though it may seem more incomprehensible for the world to understand, the more divine it appears to us, having come directly from God as as His perfect revelation. In the words of St. Augustine, Deservedly, therefore, did the prophets announce He'd be born, the heavens and the angels, that He'd be born. He lay in a manger, and yet the world rested in his hands. As an infant, he was wordless, and yet he was word itself.
Thank you very much.